1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has been reminding the nation of Israel of God's many blessings and proven faithfulness towards them. God had supplied every need along their journey, despite their rebellion and idolatry. The theme of Deuteronomy is loving God supremely. In it, we see that the Israelites were to love and obey God because he first loved them. We love God because he first loved us. Last we saw Moses going over God's moral law to the nation of Israel. These are the Ten Commandments and express God's holiness and perfect nature to men. We continue looking at these commandments as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 20.
0: The whole theme of the book of Deuteronomy is loving God supremely, and Moses spent the first section of the book telling Israel how much God had loved them, and now we're in the section where he's urging them to love God back. And that's important for us to understand. If we're going to love God supremely, we need to know how much He loves us. And so today, we're going to get into the topic of fear. In 2001, NBC aired a reality show called Fear Factor that became wildly popular. Anybody remember that show? It's funny. I was like, oh, I want to be relevant. I'll talk about Fear Factor. It stopped showing in 2006. So how relevant I am. But what's interesting is it pitted a group of contestants against one another in a variety of stunts and dares. And the contestants, they'd have to conquer their fears to complete those tasks to move on, you know, to the next round until only one person remained to claim the grand prize of 50 grand. Well, when it comes to the scripture, the Bible has a lot to say about fearing God. And yet it speaks both of our need to fear God and yet how we don't have to be afraid of God. So how do we reconcile those two things? Have you ever wondered that? I have. Well, as Moses finishes going over the Ten Commandments here with Israel, he reminds them of their reaction when they first heard those Ten Commandments. And as we see the reaction God wants from them, may we learn the important factors involved in fearing God correctly. So chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20 with the Ninth Commandment. We've covered the first eight. We're now going to get to the Ninth Commandment, which is no lying. Chapter 5, verse 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The phrase there, to bear, it means to answer, to testify, or to declare. False witness is a witness that is worthless when seeking to ascertain what is true and good. So I'm trying to figure out what's true and good about something, and someone gives me an answer that won't help me find the right answer at all. That's what it means to bear false witness. So anytime I conceal, twist, misdirect or flat-out lie when the right thing to do is give an honest answer, I'm giving false testimony. Now, 99.9% of the time, telling the truth is going to be the right thing to do. Now, you might be saying, what? I am leaving this church. You know, lying is never okay. When would that 0.01% be? Well, how about when you're trying to surprise a loved one, right? Where are we going, honey? Oh, we're just going to the normal restaurant we normally go to, You know, and then you pull into the nice one, right? You're lying, but it's for a good cause. <laughs> That's not bearing false witness. That's obviously not what God's talking about here. How about when the government's trying to kill innocents? Remember the example when Pharaoh told the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys? And they, they did not give a, a truthful answer to him about why the children of the state remained alive it would not be right and good to give a truthful answer at that point. It would not, that giving a, a truthful answer at that point in time would not be helping to ascertain what is true and good. The same thing happened with, member remember, Jericho and Rechab could despise. That would have not been right to give them away. So the idea is, is bearing false witness was when, when you can do the right thing, when trying to ascertain what is true and right and you decide not to, either by concealing, twisting, or misdirecting or flat out lying, that's what God's talking about here. So 99.9% of the time means you need to tell the truth. So most of us are not going to encounter a situation like the Hebrew midwives or maybe like those who hid Jewish people from the Nazis in Germany, the Christians who did that. We are not going to encounter that situation, which means you and I need to tell the truth lying is epidemic in our culture epidemic most of us lie without even realizing it people just they lie they twist they misdirect they avoid or they conceal all the time it's crazy how i catch people all the time and stuff silly things you know you'll be talking to somebody and you just they'll say oh yeah i I pray every night pastor and i'm like all right you pray every night well not every night okay well then you don't pray every night how often do you pray frequently what does that mean? You're misdirecting me. You're trying to tell me uh, you have a good enough prayer life that I shouldn't be pestering you about it. But the truth is your prayer life could use a lot of improvement. But you don't want to answer that because you don't want to deal with the consequences of answering that because now you're embarrassed. Now the pastor might think I'm not a good Christian. Now, I mean, all the things that the reasons that we don't just tell the truth because we don't want to experience the consequences of our, our actions, whether those actions were intentional or by mistake, that never works. It never works, even when you get away with it because here's why dishonesty ruins intimacy always always when we do marriage counseling we talk about the principles of marriage the first two principles if you can get these right you'll have a marriage that lasts the principle of permanence the idea of being committed to each other no matter what and then the principle of severance the idea of you've left your father and mother and you are you are leaving behind those attachments your first priority is your spouse if you can get those two principles right you can have a marriage that will last may not be happy may not be useful but you'll have one that lasts. The next principle says they're one flesh, the idea of unity. You know, the idea of moving forward together, the idea that God is using your marriage for something good. If you have that, you can have a marriage that accomplishes things. But the last one, it mentions that Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed. That speaks of intimacy. No walls, nothing hidden. I love you and accept you just the way you are with all warts and all, because I can see them. I love you just the way you are. I accept you just the way you are, and you can feel free to be exactly who you are with me at any moment. Good, bad, and ugly. That is true friendship. That's true intimacy. That's true connection. And we can't have that with God, and we can't have it with other people if we're going to have dishonesty going on. You can't have it. Dishonesty always ruins intimacy with God and with others. In 1 John 1, verse 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. God is light and in him is no darkness at all, right? So we walk in the light as he is in the light. No darkness, nothing hidden, no walls, no dishonesty, no twisting, no concealing, no hiding, no misdirecting. It says, if we do that, we have fellowship with God and with one another. And the blood of Christ is continually cleansing us from all sin. If you are, you know, are struggling with intimacy in your marriage or with, with other people in the sense that you don't have any deep friendships, maybe ask yourself the question, what am I hiding? What am I holding back? where am I being dishonest? Because it will always ruin intimacy. And God doesn't want that with us and him. He doesn't want it with us and others. And so he says, thou shalt not bear false witness. So I ask you tonight, you know, do you have anything you need to tell somebody? One of the things we do in premarital counseling is we grill the couple. Is there anything that this person needs to know that you haven't told them yet? I had a couple once that I I did counseling for. And the problem in their marriage at that point in time was because they'd been married for 10 years and she just found out that he had a child from another relationship. That's a little late. Now, we all do that at times, maybe not that exact story, but we all hide things and that creates barriers because you're always gonna be trying to protect that thing you don't want them to find out about. And that's gonna wreck your intimacy. So do you have anything you need to tell somebody? Don't waste any more time trying to cover things up here's the problem with lying so often you have to keep covering up with other lies and when that web gets really complicated nobody can get in because it's so diverse there's webs within webs lies within lies I've known people that have told lies for so long they've actually convinced themselves that that's how it really happened not hard to do it's easy for us to go that's crazy not hard to do when you have to keep telling yourself that's how it was so you don't ever let it get out our brains are funny that way what you put in is what you get out. So don't lie. Don't waste any more time trying to cover things up. Now, the 10th commandment is in verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So the 10th commandment is no coveting, no coveting at all. The word there, desire, it means to strongly covet what someone else has. Covet is is a stronger word. It means to crave, to have a strong yearning for something. The idea is God's saying don't be jealous of another person's success or don't be jealous of the fruits of their success. I think it's Hebrews 13 5 where it says godliness with contentment is great gain. Yeah, let your conversation, the way you live your life, be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Like that needs to be the thing that we're totally content with, that Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll I'll never forsake you. You see, that's great, Lord, but he's got a, you know, what's the cool car these days? I don't know. It was like a Trans Am or a Corvette when I was growing up. Ferrari. I, I don't know. You know, whatever the newest, nicest thing is. Lord says, yeah, but I'll never leave you and forsake you. That needs to be the thing that fuels us. And that needs to be the thing that we can sit down every day and go, I'm good. No matter what, you'll never leave me and forsake me. I'm good. And when we do that, we don't look at someone else's success. We don't look at someone else as the fruits of their success and go, must be nice. You know, we can, we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing we can be happy for them. So I'd I'd ask you tonight, you know, are you frustrated with your life, your quality of life? And is it because you've had your eyes on someone else's success or someone else's stuff? That's a quick way to being miserable. Quick way to being miserable. There are times when, you know, you come home and and you look around and and you just, man, Lord, thanks for my home and you love everything. But then you go somewhere that's just a little bit nicer. And then you come home and the whole house looks different, doesn't it? You're like, you go in, and you're like, oh, Lord, you know, it's great. Thanks for you. the remodeled bathroom. But then you go to somebody else's and, like, could sleep in there. You know, it just, there's a fit of bed inside of it. I could barely fit inside the shower, but you can put a bed inside this person's bathroom. And the next thing you know, you're walking in, you're kicking stuff, the toilet paper roll, whatever, you know, and taking your shower, and you're, like, pushing out against the walls. You're like, must be nice. Covetousness is a quick way to miserableness. This so the Lord says don't. He says just be content with the fact that I'll never leave you or forsake you that's good enough. Now, that brings us to the end of the Ten Commandments. And so, verse 22, Moses says, these words the Lord spoke unto all your assembly in the mount. And he spoke out of the midst of the fire, out of the midst of the cloud, and of the thick darkness with a great voice. And he added no more. In other words, the rest of the law came to the people a different way. God didn't speak it with his own mouth so that all the people of Israel could hear it. Well, Why? Why didn't all the law come that way? Moses will explain that in a little bit. But he just mentions here, that's all God said at that moment. And then God wrote down those 10 commandments on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me. All the commandments, of course, were important because as we covered last week in chapter 4, verse 45, where it says there that these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgment. The testimonies reveal God's will, the statutes reveal God's standard, and the judgments reveal God's heart. We need to know God's will. We need to know God's standard. We need to know God's heart. All God's commandments embody those things, but the 10 commandments embody God's moral law, which never changes. And so God wrote them down for Israel to never forget that they would see those, those tablets and they would know this is God's moral law, which never, ever changes. These were the most basic terms of God's covenant with Israel. How did they respond to hearing them from God's mouth? with absolute terror. Look at verse 23. And it came to pass when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness for the mountain did burn with fire. It was pretty crazy looking. It says, after you heard God's voice speaking out of this fiery presence on a mountain, it says that you came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, which means, check this out, Moses. We've got a thought here. The Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God does talk with man, and he lives. The leaders of Israel mentioned three things here that they experienced. They saw God's glory. God has showed us his glory. They saw God's power. God showed them his greatness, and they heard his voice. But notice, which is the one that had the greatest impact upon them? Which was the one that terrified them the most? God's voice, right? Because it mentions here, they add, we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire, and we have seen this day that God does talk with man, and he actually lives. The one that had the greatest impact on him was God's word, God's voice. And so should should it surprise us that God tells us he exalts his word above his name, the name like no other name, the only name by which a person can be saved, and he exalts his word above it? I would ask you tonight, is God's word magnificent to you, or do you crave something better, something more, something, you know, the word's great, but yeah, I mean, I want to see something better. God's word is the greatest miracle that has ever been given to us, and when we let it impact our lives, it's the most effective. Now, while it blew them away to be alive after hearing God speak the Ten Commandments, They didn't want to press God's goodwill. They figured if God kept talking, they'd eventually end up dead. And so they said, Moses, we've got a thought here. We've got an idea. And they propose an alternate method to learn the rest of God's commands. Look at verse 25. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we've survived up to this point, but if we hear his voice anymore, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? We are very fortunate to still be alive right now, Moses. We don't want to press our luck, So we've got an alternate plan. Now they ask a good question. Who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Well, God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God spoke to Cain. He spoke to Noah. spoke to Abraham after the fall of man, right? And yet, even in those situations, we don't ever get the impression that God appeared to them out of the fire in all of his glory like he did here on Sinai. This is a pretty unique experience for mankind. So while God had given promises to Noah and Abraham as well, never before had God not only spoken out of the midst of his full glory, but never before had God outlined his perfect and holy standard as clearly as this. See, Israel... As they're hearing the Ten Commandments, they knew they were sinners. They knew they didn't live up to that standard. I mean, again, you hear it. Thou shalt not have any gods before me. And you're looking at your, your brother and you're going, did you get rid of the gods like I asked you two seconds ago? You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, do, do we still have gods? Oh, yeah, man, they're still in the tent. We're dead. You shall not make a graven image. Dead twice. Honor your father and mother. Like 800 people are like, we're dead. Don't lie, don't steal. They're just thinking, God's gonna kill us. Why are we not dead yet? We've broken every one of these. They are thinking, we are so fortunate right now. We've heard God's holy standard and we're still alive. We don't wanna press our luck. So they propose a different plan for God to communicate the rest of his terms for their relationship. Verse 27, Moses, you go near and you hear all that the Lord our God shall say and then you speak unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto you and then we'll hear it, we'll listen to it and we'll do it. We want to be obedient. It's not that they didn't want to do what God said, and it's not even that they thought they couldn't do what God said. They just didn't want God to be close enough to kill them when they messed up. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us? To keep him at a distance so we don't get in too much trouble. Sometimes we're like that. For example, I, I worked in the restaurant industry. And, and the way most restaurant industries work, especially if it's a chain, you've got the pyramid of leadership. You've got some CEO making the big bucks, making all the dumb decisions. And then they've got the, the people underneath them that have to enforce it regionally and then state-wise and then district-wise, whatever. And of course, it, most of it doesn't translate to actual everyday life very well. But what happens when they come into town? Well, you may have had your way of doing things, but when they're in town, you're like, all right, we got we to do it exactly by the book, because they're going to get all whatever with us if we don't. I remember I was, I was probably 17 years old, so I was a kid, and then one of our district managers came, regional manager, I don't remember, I was at Taco Bell, and I wasn't on the line, thank God, I think I was in the drive-thru, and somebody was on the line, and the regional manager literally like pulled him off the line and said, get this guy off the clock, and then he started stuffing the tacos, like, that's going to save our bottom line that day. But that's how it worked. It was stressful. It, you know, you think that's not a good work environment when you live like that. God doesn't want us operating like that with him where we're kind of just waiting, you know, going, oh, you know, he's just waiting for me to mess up so he can kick me off the line. That is not the kind of relationship that God wants with us. And that type of fear, it might keep you in line, but it will never bring you close to God. It will never give you intimacy with the Lord. And so while God wants us to have an accurate view of our absolute inability, he wants us to understand we're sinners. He wants us to understand we can't do anything without him. But he wants our chief motivation for our obedience to be love, not to not get caught, to not get busted. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus just said, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not complicated, right? He said, do you love me? Do what I say. That's how we show we love him. He didn't say, if you're afraid of me, do what I say. He said, if you love me, do what I say. Keep my commandments. Our love for God, of course, is a direct response to what? Understanding how much he loves us, right? That's why learning about how much he loves us is good, because it causes us to love him back. When we understand in greater capacities how gracious God's been to us, how kind he is to us, how how much he wants to bless us, what the cross did for us, how he continues to work in our lives, what does it do? It breaks our hearts, right? It melts us. I mean, that's what happens to me. Like, if me and Bev aren't getting along, and she's just killing me with kindness, it just eventually, you know, I might be grouchy and grumbling, I'm not changing, I'm not whatever, but eventually it just melts my heart. I'll come up to and I'll say, I been so mad at you, and you know, and I don't like this the way things are going. But man, I love you, and I'm sorry, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to be this way anymore. Because we understand we're loved, we want to love back, and so that's the idea here: is in understanding how much God loves us, our, our direct response to that is to love Him back. Our direct response to love Him back doesn't come because we're terrified of judgment. That will never be a loving response back to God, because we're terrified of judgment. And see, that's what Moses tried to explain to Israel when they made this proposal back in Exodus. Look at Exodus 20 with me. This part he doesn't cover here, but I think it's important to revisit it. And let's look at verses 18 through 20. This is kind of going over what Moses just mentioned. And all the people saw, verse 18, all the people saw the thunderings, the lightnings, and the noise of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed, they ran away, and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, we want you to speak with us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak with us, lest we die. That's part we've heard so far. Look at verse 20, what Moses' first reaction was to their proposal. Moses said unto the people, what? Fear not, for God has come to prove you. And that his fear may be before your faces so that you don't sin. Hold on a second. You want our fear to be before his face, but you said fear not? That's a contradiction, Moses. What are you talking about here? Is Moses schizophrenic? Not at all not at all. Verse 20, these two words for fear are actually different words. Now, while both of them, if they're just by themselves, can mean either to be afraid of something or to have respect and reverence for someone, they can both mean either one of those when they're by themselves. Context determines it. However, whenever you put the two, word, two different words together, the first one used here always means to be afraid of someone and the second one will always mean to worship respect or revere someone so what is moses telling them stop being afraid of god he doesn't want you to be fearful of him god is just here to test you he's here to he wants your his fear maybe before your faces he wants your respect and reverence to be something that's always in front of you so that you don't sin so that he can bless you that's the heart of this here Moses isn't confused. See, God didn't want Israel to be terrified of him now that they'd entered into this relationship with them. God wanted to bless them by revealing himself and drawing them closer. And that is how God always wants us to relate to him. It's reaffirmed in the New Testament. In First John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, it tells us, It says, whosoever fears is not made perfect in love. What does that mean, not made perfect in love? Well, the word perfect in the New Testament usually refers to completion or maturity. And so the idea here is if you're fearful of God, if you're terrified of God, you don't understand his love. You need to mature more in your understanding of how much God loves you. So if you're walking around thinking God's just a big boot in the sky waiting to bust you, you don't understand his love yet you need to come to a greater understanding of his love. You need to grow more in that area of your, your Christian life. For he says in verse 18 of 1 John 4, there is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. See, when you're walking around only obeying God because you're terrified of what he'll do if you don't, that's a pretty rough life, isn't it? I mean, that's, I mean, having that kind of relationship with anybody is a stressful life a boss, or, you know, a family member, a marriage. I mean, that's stressful. Oh, I don't want to upset him. If I upset him, it's all whatever's going to break loose. That's never fun living like that. And the Lord doesn't want us to live like that with him. We're terrified of him all the time. That's not what it means to fear God. That's a wrong fear of God. We love him because he first loved us. See, when we understand How much He loves us. We want to love Him back and we want to be obedient, show it by being obedient to Him.
1: If we walk around obeying God only out of fear of what will happen if we don't, we don't really understand His love toward us. God wants all mankind to draw near to Him. Yes, we are all sinners deserving of punishment. God would be just in judging us. But that is not God's heart towards man. He is merciful. He is wanting to bless us. And the only way He will do that is by us drawing near to Him. God didn't let our sin keep us distant. He did everything to ensure that we can come close, boldly enter into His throne room, where we can find grace and help in time of need. He will never turn us away. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando.